following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. I want to begin today with famous last words. All right. Um, here are some famous last words of people you may have heard of. First one is this. How were the receipts today at Madison Square Garden? P.T. Barnum, circus entrepreneur of Barnum and Bailey Circus, right? The last thing he said on his deathbed were, how were the receipts today at Madison Square Garden? This was back when you could put a circus in Madison Square Garden. They don't do that thing anymore, that kind of thing anymore, I don't think. How about this one? Just don't leave me alone. Can you guess what depressing person said that? <laughs> John Belushi. Right? You know John Belushi, the life of the party, the life of America's party for a decade, died saying, just don't leave me alone. And if you think that's depressing, just let me tell you, I did not put the most depressing ones that I found in the list today. There are some much more discouraging ones. Here's one that's not discouraging, actually really kind of beautiful in a lot of ways. He said, I shall be with Christ, and that is enough. Do you know who said this? Michael Faraday. Raise your hand if you know who Michael Faraday is. Look at that. I know you know him, you electronics nerd. Michael Faraday was a scientist, a really, really important scientist. He uh, made many discoveries in electromagnetism and electrochemistry. The fact that I'm able to build little uh, electronic pedal circuits is, uh, and understand a little bit of how they work is due in large part to Michael Faraday. We don't often think of big-time important scientists saying on their deathbed, I will be with Christ and that is enough. But that's what Michael Faraday said. One of, my, um, one of the most interesting people of our time, I think, died saying this. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Does anybody know who that was? This is a recent death. Steve Jobs. As reported by his sister, I believe. Let me give you another one. Who said on his deathbed, the last thing he said, be sure to play Blessed Lord tonight. Play it real pretty. Was Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Maybe my favorite one on the list. Die, my dear? Why, that's the last thing I'll do. <laughs> Anybody know who that was? Groucho Marx. <laughs> Here's one for the history buffs. If you like American history, you surely will know who said, I only regret that I have but one life to lose for my country. Nathan Hale. He was a spy, wasn't he? During the American Revolution. Hanged by the British. Well, I think someone's last words, if they are given a moment and an opportunity to share them, of course, not everybody has given that ability to determine what their last words are. I think if you are, though, it's, it's, it's something that says a great deal about who you are and, and what's important to you. And uh, so I want to give you Jesus' last words on earth. Now, I'm cheating a little bit because Jesus rose from the dead. And these words were spoken after that fact. These are the last words he spoke before he was taken up in a cloud. 
as one of the songs we sang earlier said. And his disciples had asked him one of their dumb disciple questions. You would think at this point they would stop asking him the dumb disciple questions, but they didn't. They had asked him, like, okay, Lord, is now the time that you're going to restore Israel? He's like, you've asked me that so many times. (laughs) That's not what I'm going to do. Did you remember the thing with the donkey? Or the thing with Pilate? I said, this kingdom is not of this world. What he said to them is this. It is not for you to know the times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. It's fitting today, actually, for you church calendar buffs, you might know that today is the day when the church marks the ascension of the Lord. This is the last thing Jesus said before he was taken up. An incident which was captured beautifully in a very famous painting in the 18th century by John Singleton Colby, The Ascension. Has anybody seen this painting before? Uh, Even if you're not a fan of 18th century art, if you're a citizen of the internet, you may have seen the jokey version of this image. I think when I saw this, it was, it was captioned, just one more should do it. <laughs> if you are listening uh, to this sermon via podcast and you can't see the image, um, just do it. Let's see. Do Google image search for Jesus on a trampoline. <laughs> I don't think you'll have a lot of uh, results that are different from the one that we're looking at right now. Hopefully you'll see the one that we're looking at. But, um, so get that picture out of your mind, right? No, let's take that away. Right? Forget you ever saw that. Because the point is that the last thing that Jesus said to his disciples, literally seconds before this event, which is depicted in this painting, were these. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So that's our sermon title for today as we conclude our series on reimagining evangelism. The title is, We Are All Witnesses. Because I think when Jesus said that to the disciples who were standing there with him, we can, by extrapolation, hear the words for ourselves as well. You will be my witnesses. We are all witnesses. As I mentioned in the first week of this series, I prefer to use this word as a noun, this word witness. In some parts of the church, as you know, perhaps, the word is used as a verb. I prefer the noun. Now, of course, witness can be used. There is a verb form of witness, right? As in, I witnessed an event. I witnessed a car accident, something like that. But that's not how I'm talking about it. The, the verbification of, <laughs> of the word witness. What I'm talking about is when it's used this way. Um, I witnessed to 14 people in the Wegmans parking lot before they called security. 
<laughs> Yay! Yeah! <laughs> Is she two now? Almost two years old, ready to get the pastor's corny jokes. It's great. <laughs> now, I please, just a moment of seriousness here. I don't in any way mean to diminish the very real fact that in some parts of the world you actually can be arrested and detained and worse for talking about Jesus. That is no laughing matter. I have a friend who's doing missionary work in China, and he and some of the people he works with have been detained by the, by the authorities for speaking about Jesus a little too much. But in America, with the degree of religious freedom that we have, I would humbly propose that if you're being arrested while you're um, witnessing, you're probably being a little bit too aggressive. <laughs> okay. Probably, there may be a better way you could go about it. Uh, never say never, but I think broadly speaking, that's probably true. But if we keep the word witness as a noun, I think that there are some interesting observations we can make. Because a witness, at the end of the day, is nothing more than a person, a type of person. Right? A witness is something that you are, it's not something that you do. What is a witness? Think about it in the, in the court system. That's where it's most commonly used today. A witness is a person who saw an event and describes it to others. Perhaps experienced an event and is describing it to others. In the court system, a witness is called to tell what? The truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And if a witness withholds the truth or bends the truth or avoids the truth, he's guilty of what we call obstruction of justice. So when I say that we are all witnesses, I really mean that all of us are witnesses. One way or another, we offer testimony about Jesus. And if we are to be effective witnesses... I would suggest that the testimony must be, above all else, the truth. The whole truth and nothing but the truth, as the, as the phraseology goes in the courts. Think about this for a second. Where else in the Bible is the word witness used? Very, come on, Bible nerds. Very, very maybe, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> maybe in Hebrews. That's not what I'm talking about, though, so don't. Don't go down that road. <laughs> now, I'm thinking of a very famous verse in the Bible. Maybe one of the <clears throat> top ten verses in the Bible. Bear false witness, right? It's the ninth commitment. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, right? Why are you shaking your head? Top ten, yeah. It's... <laughs> You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. So as we think about false witness in the context of evangelism, the first person who comes to my mind is Peter, the Apostle Peter. I'm going to read to you now from Mark chapter 14. Uh, if you'd like to follow along with this, you can. I didn't remember to get the page in the Red Bibles. I just have it printed on my notes, so if you just want to listen, that's fine. Or if you can find Mark 14 uh, on your own, please do. 
So it's after Jesus has been arrested and taken in to the Jewish authorities. It says, while Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, he was by the fire, she stared at him and said, you also were with Jesus, the man from Nazareth. But he denied it, saying, I do not know or understand what you are talking about. <laughs> Sometimes the words in the Bible, like the author probably didn't intend this, but it almost sounds to me like he's pretending he doesn't speak her language. <laughs> I do not know or understand what you are talking about. <laughs> and he went out into the forecourt. Then the cock crowed. And the servant girl, on seeing him, began again to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them. But again, he denied it. Then after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly, you are one of them, for you're a Galilean. And then in what certainly must not have been Peter's proudest moment in life, he began to curse and swore an oath, uh, which Mark doesn't record with exact words, apparently, (laughs) saying, I do not know this man you are talking about. I suspect Mark left out the adjectives in that sentence when he was quoting Peter. At that moment, the cock crowed for the second time, and then Peter remembered that Jesus had said to him, before the cock crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Which is probably what I would do upon making that realization that the person who meant the most to me in the whole world, had been taken away. And rather than defend him, I pretended that I didn't know him to try to save my own, I don't know what, freedom, hide. I I wonder if it might have just been pride. So Peter, as a witness, does not exactly have a spotless record. Peter... Um, if you read the New Testament, you know is a passionate person. He rushes in. Remember when we talked about the, the, the resurrection day? He's the one who uh, arrived at the tomb, and John had just gotten there ahead of him and stopped at the entrance, and Peter went right by him, right into the tomb. That's Peter. He doesn't think before he acts, and we know people like that. I am not always one of them. I, I, I like to sit back and think about things. Peter is a passionate, like spur-of-the-moment person. So much so that he he not only traveled with Jesus and and saw all these things and was like a vocal preacher even before he knew quite what he was preaching about, but when they came to arrest Jesus in one kind of last moment of defense, he he pulled out his sword and cut off the the ear of one of the people who had come to, to collect Jesus. But when things seemed to really be falling apart and Jesus wasn't there anymore, you know, um, you know, Jesus, the guy who can raise the dead and heal the sick and cause blind people to see and make lame people walk, you're, you're pretty bold with the sword when he's standing right next to you because, like, whatever happens, he's probably going to be okay. He, surely he'll heal me after they beat me up or something, right? But Jesus is gone, and it seems like things may be falling apart. 
his expectations about what Jesus was going to do are clearly not going to come true. So he denies he has anything to do with him. Whatever else he might say about this, <clears throat> about it being a product of his personality type, temperament, and so forth, it was false witness. His witness, his testimony about what he had seen and experienced was not true in that moment. And the reason I bring that up is because I think some of us are a little bit like Peter these days. There's always the risk uh, of saying a sentence like that, that what I'm doing is projecting my own self onto all of you, so forgive me if that's what I'm doing just now. But I think there's a very specific movement in especially American culture, but this is true in the UK and probably in other parts of the world as well, where um, there's, a, there's a more vocal uh, stream of atheism that has emerged. And there's, so there's a lot more direct challenges to the beliefs and teachings of the Christian faith um, that are apparent throughout culture now. Which, uh, don't hear me going down this, oh, poor us road, right? That is not the way I'm going. American Christians are just fine, okay? The persecution thing is a little bit overdone, if you ask me. But what I'm trying to say is that, and, and broadly speaking, I think it's good when somebody who's bright and intelligent challenges our beliefs and causes us to think about how and why we believe them and, and, and how, to, how to defend them and so forth. So uh, this is not to cast aspersions at, the, at these people who are making these arguments. It's simply to say that since they are more prevalent in American culture now, I think it's, it's, it feels a little bit like... Um, Jesus has been taken away and locked in a room, right? That it's not, it's not anymore just as simple as saying, yes, I believe in Jesus, I, you know, the creed. Yeah, I, I sign off on the Apostles' Creed. And somebody's going to say to you now, no, really, the Apostles' Creed said that he raised from the dead. You know that, right? You know that that's, you know, that doesn't happen. That's physically impossible. And you have to kind of, you have to be able to defend that belief. You have to have some reason why you believe that. I think probably more so, at least for, in my own life, than, than you did maybe even five or ten years ago. It's not quite as simple simply to say that, yeah, I'm a believer. Am I the only one who feels this way? It seems like this is where culture is going. Again, I think it's probably good for us in the long run. The point is, when someone comes to you or to me and says, aren't you one of them? <laughs> Didn't I see you with Jesus? Didn't we go to that same goofy summer camp in high school? It's tempting to say, like Peter did, oh, no, no, not, not me, no. And it's so telling, I think, that this happens three times to Peter. Because you... You, you, can, you can kind of feel like you can get away with denying Jesus once and then that person will go away and you can confess your sin and everything will be fine and, you know, for the rest of the day at least, right? No, not me. Let's not talk about it. Did you see that basketball game last night? Man, 
Spurs. No, I'm pretty sure I saw you with him. Are you one of his disciples? And Peter had to deny it again and then again. Anyway, sometimes I think I feel like Peter. Because the prevailing assumption in American culture is no longer that everybody believes the same stuff. And, and in the face of which he failed, which is to say, no, not me. I'm not, no. Maybe you already have. Maybe there's already an occasion in your workplace or on your Wednesday night sports league or wherever it might be where this has come up and you have given false witness because it's easier. Maybe chosen to say nothing because it's easier. Just like Peter. And yet, there is hope for all of us who in our different ways have denied Jesus. Because Peter's story did not end around the campfire. Peter's story ended actually quite a bit worse than sitting around a campfire warming himself. Tradition tells us that Peter was crucified upside down so as not to be uh, executed in the same form as the Lord Jesus was. When the Romans came for him, he said, no, not that way. The reason that this happened to him, though, was because he became such a vocal witness for the truth of Christianity, which was a very unpopular position in first century Rome. And so if you're a person who's lamenting the fact that you've denied Jesus in your own way, whatever it might be, remember Peter's story did not end at the time that the cock crowed. There's a lot more to his story. So as we conclude this series on reimagining evangelism, I want to leave you with this thought, that we are all witnesses. No excuses. We are all witnesses. And you don't actually get a choice in the matter of whether or not you're a witness. You are one. Again, a witness is something that you are, not something that you do. If you've had an experience with Jesus, you are a witness. If you have ever said anything about Jesus, you are a witness. If you've chosen not to say something about Jesus, you are a witness for the defense or the prosecution. I don't know how that would work out, but you see what I'm saying. Your choices to speak or not speak do not make you a witness or not a witness. It just changes the type of testimony you're giving. And not only by your words are you a witness, but you are a witness by your actions. Every time you do something or fail to do something, you are saying something about the gospel you claim to believe in. 
You don't get a choice in the matter. We are all witnesses. What you do get a choice about is whether your testimony, whether you as a witness will give testimony that is true or testimony that is false. Ultimately, evangelism is not so much something we're called to do, but someone we're called to be. Yes, it's both. But if you're nervous about the, the guy with the megaphone and whether I'm trying to turn you into him, <laughs> remember that evangelism is first and foremost someone you're called to be. Once you have begun to shift your mind in that direction, but not too long afterward, you can begin to think about the actions of evangelism, what that would look like. And don't, don't make the mistake of thinking that you have to figure out the being and get it perfectly right. Remember, this is the, the first, first week of our series. You don't have to be an expert Christian to share the gospel. So if evangelism is some, someone you're called to be rather than something you're called to do, my question for you is, is very simply, who are you? Let's have a moment of silent prayer as you think about that. I hope that you are somewhat unsettled in pondering that. Because what I'm trying to say is that you are an evangelist all the time. (laughs) The faucet is always on. The light is always lit. Your decision point is about where you're going to aim that hose, if we're going with the faucet metaphor. (laughs) And whether you're going to cover up the light or hold it behind you or something like that, if we're going to go with the light metaphor. if you're thinking about the fact that you are a witness by the things that you say and don't say, the things that you do and don't do, and you're talking about being a witness 24-7, 365, and you've just begun to answer the question, who am I, and that doesn't unsettle you, well, you are a more perfect person than I am because I just had to stop the silence early because it was too many things to think about all the ways that I've screwed this up in the last two months. Did I say months? (laughs) there may be some things you need to to confess to God and try to allow him to work on in your life. I don't have time to say any more about that right now. I want to invite you to the Lord's table, the place where we always make our response to the word of God. And this morning, if you come to take communion, and by the way, it's an open table, any person who's following Jesus um, is one of his disciples, even a terrible one like Peter around the campfire, is, is, is able and allowed and invited and encouraged to take communion with us. But as you're coming to the table, this is what I want to think about. I want to think about those people that have been brought to our mind during our moments of silence over the last few weeks.
maybe it's a person, it's a member of your family or a friend, I want you to think about the fact that when you come to the table of the Lord to have this meal that he offers to you, the fact that there's an empty chair next to you around that table for the person that God has brought to mind. I want you to think about the fact that he or she is not sharing in this spiritual meal with you. And as you fill your stomach with God's grace at the table of the Lord, I want you to sit with that emptiness. So our table is open. Respond as the Spirit leads. And let's continue to worship Him together as we sing and take communion and pray together. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.